Right now, I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about Calfee, Halter, and Griswold, a full-service corporate law firm with attorneys throughout Ohio and in Washington, D.C. Calfee's mission has been to provide meaningful legal and business counsel to entrepreneurs and investors, private business owners and nonprofits, public corporations. I've referred many successful entrepreneurs and investors to Calfee knowing how well they'd be taken care of. And it's for those reasons that I would encourage you to visit their website, calfee.com. That's C-A-L-F-E-E.com. Thank you very much to Calfee. Hi, I'm Adam Kaufman, and you're listening to the Up To Podcast. I've been fortunate throughout my career to be networking and serving and working with some of the most successful and influential leaders in America. Eight years ago, we started Up To as a live event series which showcased leaders who I thought were as humble as they are successful. The humility piece is very important as we identify these leaders who can hopefully inspire others. And over the years, we've interviewed trailblazers from the fields of medicine, from business, from the military, nonprofit leaders, from politics, and more. We really focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives, and we found that there's a real thirst to explore their hearts and their minds in maybe atypical ways. So time and again, attendees of Up To asked us to expand the event so that more people could participate and benefit from the special conversations taking place. And that's why we started this podcast. Today's episode features one of the most accomplished, frankly, most colorful global leaders I've ever met, Philippe Bourguignon. We traveled to Washington, D.C. to sit down with Philippe, who is the former CEO of Euro Disney, a longtime board member of eBay, a board member currently of Cava, one of the fastest growing restaurants in the U.S. with close to 300 locations. He's the former CEO of Exclusive Resorts, the former CEO of Miraval, a luxury spa destination in Arizona. He was the CEO of Club Med and the one-time co-CEO of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. He's so creative, he's always optimistic, always looking to challenge himself in new ways, whether it's painting or racing sailing yachts. I'm so glad you'll get to know this extremely humble leader today. Philippe Bourguignon, welcome to Up To. Good morning. Have you ever been on a podcast before? Uh, Once, yes, and thank you for inviting me. We're so thrilled to have you here. I know you are a true global citizen, so we're grateful that you gave us some of your valuable time today. Philippe, I want to start with this. Do you ever take time thinking about, out of all of these leadership positions that you've had, what are your strengths? Like, was it by chance you ended up being the CEO of so many amazing companies, or are they all capitalizing on some strengths of yours? I think I've been very lucky. I think life is about uh, encounters and moments. And when you combine the two, you create opportunities or you don't. So you've been able to create some opportunities? Yeah, and, I, and I, I believe also that life is a, it's not a, a, a straight line. You meander, you have up and downs, and you rebound on your low moments. Yes. You learn from the low, low moments. I call that navigating a curve in the road. Yes, that's what it is. It's, uh, the, you know, so I personally believe you have some successful people who have a big ego. Yes, that's a lot. But uh, I think you are, you are even more successful if you have a limited ego because ego, close your eyes. It's difficult to make encounters because you don't even see the people. That's a great point. I haven't thought about that before. And, and just today, I had a marketing professional 
listen to some of our podcasts and I asked him for feedback. And he said, well, this is kind of my area of expertise. Do you want real feedback or are you happy with the way things are? And it was tempting to just say, hey, I'm glad you like it. But I asked for the real feedback and it was very humbling to your point. It was very humbling, but my eyes were opened. And you forget, you know, you say I've been CEO of a number of impressive companies. In fact, uh, uh, not too many is just happening that in the last 14 years, as partner with Steve Case at Revolution, I've been in charge of a number of companies within the, the family of businesses. The, the family of businesses. No, but this uh, is you being but, humble. But there is, but there is You're one. You're Disney. That wasn't related. For me, uh, first, again, I've been lucky and I really liked any single of my jobs. You've liked them all. Oh. But the one where I learned the most, and uh, which I think is the reason why I've been successful after, is my 14 years with Accor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Accor a hotel, international hotel. Yes, we were not talking about startup at the time. I, I started at Accor in 1974. Mm. There were five motels in France, two co-founders, exceptional people. They taught me everything. Now, how did you end up with them? Were you already in the hotel industry, or how did that even start? No, I wanted to find a job. I didn't follow the advice of my father. My father told me, you take whatever job which pays the most because your salary follows you the rest of your life. Mm. You know, you are increased by right. 10% That's or by starting percent yeah. So the starting point is very important. And, uh, but my goal was to travel. Did you grow up in France or I thought Morocco, maybe you were born in Morocco? I was raised in Morocco. I arrived okay. in Morocco, I was two years old and okay. I left, I was 17. Okay. So it, it broadens your mind. Sure. Morocco at the time and still today is a very tolerant country and uh, you're raised, my my parents put me in a public school. Mm, Wow. And in public school, you had uh, Muslims, uh, Jewish, Catholic, Protestants. Pretty homogenous though. And uh, and nobody cared. And there was this community of people around in Morocco. That's, that's the world I've been living in. And I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to my parents to, you know, first to live in Morocco. Put you there, yeah. Uh, because living abroad also open your eyes, you know, broaden your mind. I interrupted you. So you were saying your father encouraged you to take a job. And then so you yeah, started so with So what I core. did is, uh, but I wanted to travel. I didn't want to stay in France. Uh, I love my country, but I wanted to travel the world because travel makes you dream. And um, I'm a passionate person and I'm a dreamer. So I found a first job, but I couldn't travel. So I looked for a job and Paul Dubreuil, the founder of Accor, again, very small company then, interviewed me. And he had, again, five motels in France and they were planning to open a hotel in Brussels, which was their first quote unquote international hotel. So give me a snapshot. Were you like in your 20s at this point or how, how old I was like 25. Okay, so pretty early in your career. And at the end of the interview, he told me, uh, so you wanted to uh, travel. We're going to go international. Do you prefer Africa or the Middle East? Wow. And uh, remember, 1974, the Middle East just started. Oil prices went up after the war of six days, you know, 73. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the United Emirates uh, became independent from the British. So 1974 was, Middle East was the place to be. What an exciting moment yes. in time. And uh, so, uh, again, I've been lucky because who would dare to take a young kid, 25, 26 years old, 
and tell him, okay, Middle East, go there. Spectacular. And your job was to find new properties to open? Was to uh, develop new hotels and uh, in countries I didn't know. So, um, you know, I, <laughs> so I uh, started in Saudi Arabia, then went to what's called the Gulf at the time. I lived and traveled in uh, Lebanon, which uh, Adam, you know well. Oh, yes. I, I lived there, in fact, uh, traveled to Jordan, traveled to Iraq, traveled to Afghanistan, to Iran, to uh, Oman, uh, Mascat, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, uh, what else? I mean, uh, when you are 26, imagine. Spectacular. Yes. And I enjoyed every minute of it. This is before you were married or had kids, so you were able to move around pretty easily, right? This is before, yes. Yeah. Uh, Yes. So I was, yes. Tremendous. I was was very available. And you had to be at the time because at the time there was no cell phone. Wow. (laughs) And hardly you had telex, which you had to use. You know, uh, can I tell you an anecdote? Please do. So the first time I arrived in Dubai, so everybody talks about Dubai and look at the pictures of Dubai today. Dubai was one thing called the creek. And the creek was this little port. This was Dubai. There was a little hotel called the Beach Hotel owned by a Lebanese. Of course. And uh, in poor shape, but, but okay. It was the only hotel anyway. So either you had a room or you had no room. If you had no room, there was a huge parking adjacent to the hotel and you could rent a cab for the night, sleep in the cab. Oh my gosh. And in the morning, you could take a shower outside in the parking and then wait in line to send your telex to Paris explaining what you did the day before. So you did do this yourself? Oh, absolutely, a number of times. The other thing is, at the time, you had a meeting with a shir or an emir for, let's say, Wednesday at 2 p.m., and you could meet with him Thursday, not Friday, Saturday or Sunday. There was no notion of time. So sometime you would get there and stay for a week for one meeting. Wow. But uh, I learned so much. I learned patience. Yes. I learned another thing. One day, I'm in Pakistan, and I'm spending a weekend in Peshawar, which is a place you cannot go today anymore. It's full of Taliban. Dangerous. But at the time, it was an amazing place, and I drove the Hyber Pass, which is the historic pass where the Greeks invaded uh, Pakistan, Asia. And uh, the Hyber Pass is between Peshawar and um, Kabul. So I was there in the mountains, and I enjoyed it. And I was supposed to take a flight on Friday night to meet with the CEO of Pakistan Airlines, who was like really a very important Big person. Big time person, yeah. Used to be Air Marshal Noor Khan, used to be the commander-in-chief of the Pakistani army. Whoa. During the war with Bangladesh. Okay. And I had a meeting with him that Saturday. And uh, I am in Peshawar, and the flight are canceled. At the time, again, you had no cell phone, no nothing. So I couldn't tell him. And uh, so I showed up like 24 hours late. I, I see his assistant, and I say, well, when can we plan a meeting? And at, that, at, at the same time, Air Marshal Nurkan gets out of his office. Oh, Philippe, you're here. I said, well, I'm so sorry I'm late, and I apologize. He said, why apologize, Philippe? When it's impossible, it's impossible. So what did you learn from that? I mean, that's what's your takeaway? I learned that when it's impossible, it's impossible. Yeah, right. That's good. That's a very important thing. Well, uh, so you, you don't force destiny. So many people get upset and stressed because there is something, because it's impossible to do anyway. So you've already mentioned like 20 countries in the first 10 minutes we've been talking. One of the things I planned on asking no, you- No, but those countries marked me because that's where I learned. And I wish those countries were in better shape today. 
Of course. You now choose to live in the United States part-time and in France part-time. What, what do you like about the United States? I imagine someone like you, you could live anywhere. Why do you choose to live in the U.S.? What do you like about the U.S.? So many things I could tell you. Yeah. So first of all, when I lived in Morocco, my father was the head of Caterpillar for Morocco at first and Africa after. Okay, good U.S. company, Caterpillar. Yes, Peoria, Illinois. Sure. And every year, my father would take me, uh, when I was uh, 10 and older, to Peoria, Illinois. Wow. With him, because he had a business meeting. Uh, I would stay with the kids of his boss for like three or four days, and then my father would take me to somewhere, another city. So that's how, between age 10 and 16... You got some exposure to the I, US. First, I got to know Peoria. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the heart of America. You know, it's deep oh, America. Heart of America. Uh, but also discovered San Francisco, Chicago, New York, uh, Houston, and so on. And, uh, and from that time, I had something with the U.S. Okay, that's the first step. The second step is I graduated, I did a master in economics at University of Aix-en-Provence. And University of Aix-en-Provence was in France. twinned in south of France. Yes. Was twinned with University of Texas. Oh, okay. And if you were doing... Your last semester in Austin, uh, you would have the master from both universities. Okay. So with a few friends, we were four of us, we uh, moved to Austin oh, for our last semester. Okay. I graduated from University of Texas. Awesome. Hook em horns. I lived there, fell in love with country music. Wow. And a country music singer, by the way. I was not married again. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, and I really loved it. During the first season of the Up To podcast, I had several companies and entrepreneurs approach me about potential partnerships, but I'm really selective before choosing to do something like that. One choice we did make happily is to partner with Vivid Front, a full service digital marketing and website design agency based in Cleveland that works with both local and national brands. They've built their entire client base on referrals and they've won a lot of awards, including the 2019 Inc. Magazine Top 5,000 Fastest Growing Companies, North Coast's Top Places to Work, and several others. They're known for their talent. They're known for their creativity. They're known for their culture, a firm I liked before we agreed to partner together for the show. Check out vividfront.com, or you can email me, and I'll introduce you to their dynamic leader, Andrew Spott. Hello, my name is Adam Kaufman, and I'm thankful you're joining us today on the Up To podcast. I want to tell you about a group that I'm grateful for, and that is Town Hall, Cleveland's most popular restaurant, and one that I can say is the only place my wife tells me she can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Town Hall was the first all non-GMO restaurant in the U.S. a few years ago, and they're now expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm also very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast, and it was with open arms that I embraced the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, you can visit townhallohiocity.com. You've mentioned your father a few times already. Was he a role model to you? Do you have a, did you have a good relationship with your father? I had a great relationship, not easy uh, all the time. My father... Uh, was in the military when he was uh, very young during the war. By the way, he joined the U.S. Army okay. and did uh, D-Day, but in Provence uh, with Patton. Wow. So his, uh, his mind was very square, sure. military. Yeah. Yes, 
Very regimented. Uh, yes. So uh, he taught me a lot mm-hmm. uh, of good values. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I didn't have, me and my sisters, we didn't have fun every day. You know, it, it was not easy. Uh, but ultimately, you know, in hindsight, it was good. We, uh, do you think those, we had a good education. Do you think those character traits of your father have affected the type of father you are? Whether it going in another direction yes, or being similar? I'm probably much more flexible. More flexible, yes. less regimented. There are two things. Uh, one is really an anecdote, but you know, at the end of the war, they were switching the lights in the places where you live. So you, you were switching on the lights only if you had to, late at night, but you know. But controlling electricity use, is that what was going on? Yes, because okay. it was restricting during the war and you were careful and so on and so forth. So okay. my father would keep switching off the lights everywhere and I would keep switching them back up, you know, back on. After the war. And, and uh, as a reaction, you were talking a reaction, it's a stupid thing, but I cannot live in a place where I don't switch all the lights. Now, my grandchildren are telling me... Turn off the lights. Yes, for but, other reasons. But that has stayed with you is, all those years. Well, it's funny, so I'm starting switching off. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. You're, you're learning from your grandkids. Oh, sure. My grandson is 10 years old. Just before this podcast, he called me. You, you saw my phone call just I did. before? I saw you on the phone, right. He was asking me what I felt about the situation in Venezuela. <laughs> A 10-year-old. 10 years old. Right. And every day, he either calls me or sends me an email, 10 years old, to ask me a question about this problem and what I feel about, you know, that decision on global warming yeah. here, what I think about Macron's decision to do this, what he's, I think about an, the he, wall in the U.S. He's an engaged young man. My point is, I think that um, at our age, we were much more submitted to the environment we lived in. You mean when you were younger? You're, yes. Okay. And uh, which is uh, obviously your family environment. Yes. Your cultural environment. Yeah, your surroundings. Your education yeah. environment, your religious environment and whatever. Mm-hmm. were formatting you. And you didn't have a chance to go directly and extrapolate from explore. the news. You can, explore you can, you can digitally meander now. You can yeah. digitally look at different things. And, uh, and therefore, you are independent intellectually yeah. much more than we were. How do you consume information? Are you a digital reader? Do you still read magazines? You're always one of the most up-to-date person I know on trends. Like, how do you consume information? First, I never talk about trends. Okay. Because trends, it's already the past. I talk about tipping points. There is a point where a certain science or technology or things uh, reaches a tipping point and then things are happening. So you need to give us an example of that just so we can apply that. Yeah. Three or four years ago, I explained that the combination of voice with Internet of Things, IoT, and artificial intelligence would change a number of things. Alexa was not born then. Alexa, Amazon, Amazon, Siri, Apple. Siri, Apple, and Mm -hmm. so on. But there was a tipping point, and it all happened within a year. See, that's so forward-thinking. That's amazing. I love how you are such a global citizen. One of the ways you and I have gotten to know each other is through this conference you co-founded in Chamonix, France, every September with other leaders from business and the political arena and from science and technology. You were at one time the co-CEO of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, which is still today probably the most renowned gathering of leaders in the world. Why did you start something different in Chamonix? What's going on at that 
summative minds, as you call it. It happened totally independently and not to recreate something okay. different or equivalent okay. or whatever. We come back to meandering. Yes. Okay? So I moved to uh, Washington uh, now 14 years ago. And the first thing I work on with uh, Steve Case is Miraval. We, uh, you Miraval, the resort Miraval, Arizona. The resort. And uh, Miraval, if you had asked me, uh, Philippe, are you going to take a few days in a spa? I would say a spa, <laughs> you know, massage. Right. Right. No. Uh, spa is the wrong word for a number of places like Miraval. Miraval is a place where you, you bump into yourself. Miraval is a place where something happens. You meet people, again, who can help you in a number of ways, even if you don't need help. So uh, it was a revelation. So for me, I obviously wanted to understand Miraval, so I did a number of things there, but I discovered that this was, for me, more than a spa more than a spa, mm -hmm. and it, it was helping me in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. By the way, my daughter, who I'm very close to, I have a great relationship, told me, uh, it was like two years ago, I wish you had done Miraval when you were 30 years old. <laughs> so she has seen a change Miraval in made you. Me it changed better. you. Yes, yeah. made me better. Okay. It, it's called mindfulness. Mindfulness. Yeah. Uh, people talk more and more about it. But again, remember, 14, 15 years ago, uh, right. it kind well, of Again, existed. you identified yeah, a trend yeah. very early. I know you don't call them yeah. trends, but... First, I love the place, Tucson, Arizona. The place itself, there is something in the ground. And I felt that we should do a conference there and mix knowledge, insight, and mindfulness. Sure. So I felt we should do it at Miraval. And we started working on it with my little think tank. But then the crisis happened, 2008, 2009, so we could not do it. And uh, my partner on the, at the Monthly Barometer, the, the think tank, Thierry Malaret, Thierry Malaret, proposed me not to do it in Miraval, but to do it in Chamonix in okay. France, which offers kind of the same. It's it Mount Blanc, the, the outdoors, hiking. Mont Blanc, the outdoors. No, plus there is a spirit there. There is something Something there. special there. So that's why we created it, not to recreate a new Davos or whatever. And I think as of now, still today, we are the only place where you can do a mindful hike in the morning or something which physically you would not do. Try to climb, but as an amateur, not not climb professionally. Right, right. And learn about yourself with as you guides. Climb. Yeah, I've been lucky yeah. enough to go the last four years. Thank you. I'm the least accomplished yeah. person there, but the guides are wonderful for they, the outdoor experience. And, and they, they, you learn something about yourself by climbing or doing. And uh, so we do it in the morning and in the afternoon, we try to reconceive the world, you know, right. and, and, uh, things and learn from each other. Big problems. So that, that's what we try to achieve, and I think we've been successful in achieving it. And then you recently just did a similar conference in Armenia, I understand. Yes. And do you plan on taking this model into other locations as well? We're going to do one in uh, Quebec. Okay. More, more in Americas. Uh, so Armenia, we're going to redo it next year. It was a real success, by the way but more like a place to, to discuss Eurasia, relationship between Europe and this part of the world. Mm -hmm. And Armenia is ideally located, in addition to being the uh, historic center for Christianism. The first Christian country in the world. In the world, mm -hmm. the oldest. You were so kind, you and Terry, to introduce me to the president of Armenia. And I was thinking, what on earth can I say to this esteemed person that will resonate at all. And so the only thing I said, I was authentic, was 
I'm Lebanese by ancestry, and I feel like our countries are similar. And he lit up. President Sarkeesian said, we love Lebanon. We're kindred spirits with Lebanon. I love that he said that. He's such an affable person. No, plus he's a very interesting person. Very he, interesting. He, he compares politics to a quantum science. And he explains it very well. It's very interesting. I want you to uh, switch gears a little bit. I've always been impressed with your creativity, whether it's the crazy socks you're famous for or the painting that you like to do. Where does that creativity come from? Because I, I think I'm not that creative. Were you always creative? Well, I don't know if I was always creative, but again, I come back to my uh, father. Uh, my father kept telling uh, my two sisters and myself that as we become adults, we should keep our child spirit. Keep your child spirit. Yes. Not take ourselves seriously. Well, you're doing that. Your father would be very proud of you. You are definitely yeah, living and, that and, life. And uh, if you adopt it, you know, still live with kids, uh, like a kid, and have dreams or whatever, by definition, you're creative. Also, I've been living in environments which were creative. I was telling you about the two co-founders of Accor. Normally, in a company, you have rules. Yes, a lot of structure. You have structure. Processes. Here, you had values, but no processes. Mm. Therefore, you can express your creativity. And they were, if you were doing mistakes, they were not blaming you. They were just talking to you to redo the same mistake, but successfully next time. Has this culture of creativity, have you tried to create that in the other companies you've led? Oh, yes, I've been trying hard. And uh, one of the reasons I, after I co I joined Disney. A very creative company, Disney. It's an amazingly creative company. Yes. Uh, Imagineers, by the way, their names, they have it. You know? Wow. And when you work for four years, like me at the beginning, you know, I worked four years with Imagineers trying to conceive new places before I became CEO of Euro Disney. You see amazing things because, same thing, they uh, no constraints. Anything's you know? possible, I bet they think. And I'll give you an example. And, uh, and this example, I again, I learned things from Dubrul Pelisson at Accor. Then I learned things, Michael Eisner, and from Imagineers. Michael Eisner, the longtime CEO of, of Disney. Uh, was my boss uh, when I was at Disney. And... Uh, so uh, the, the first time we uh, worked on a new hotel project, okay? So normally you go to an architect and you tell him, here's the land, it's rectangle. Mm -hmm. I want 300 rooms, 18 stories. The room has to be certain size, 300 square feet. Mm -hmm. The width of the room has to be that. The restaurant has to be on the first floor. The kitchen has to be adjacent to the restaurant. And uh, the architect, delivers a matchbox, which fits everywhere. Yeah, standard. You don't do that at Disney. At Disney, you go to the architect, and I forget to say, and you give him the budget. Sure. At Disney, you say, you're going to do 300 rooms. Here's the piece of land. You do as you want. Do whatever you want. Yes. The shape, the number of floors. Wow. You put the restaurant wherever you want. What a fun environment for working. But, so the architect comes back, and obviously, he will deliver something which doesn't work because it's twice as much as the budget, because he was going to put white carpet, and uh, which is dirty after 48 hours of use, because he's going to put the restaurant on the top floor and the kitchen on the ground floor, uh, and it doesn't fly, whatever. But it's called the infernal triangle. That's what I learned at Disney. Okay. So you have three peaks, right? So you tell the architect no constraints, and then 
three people review what's done. The finance people, the operational people, mm-hmm. and the creative people. And they developed a compromise versus the idealistic, crazy thing the architect has developed. Sure, fine. And the compromise ground. is better than the matchbox. Great. I'm telling you. I like that. Yeah. And do you so, try to bring that type of thinking into everywhere. your work now? No, everywhere. Yeah. Oh, yes. You know, one time you were kind enough to visit us, and I interviewed you in front of a group of CEOs in Cleveland, Ohio, and you talked about meandering. And you mentioned this at the beginning, but I want to come back to it because years later, I still have people coming up to me saying, I'm meandering like Philippe taught us to. My wife, certain colleagues of mine. Talk a little bit about why meandering is important to you and how you take a different route home from work when you're walking. So first, you know, I'm uh, lucky enough that I can uh, walk uh, in the morning to the office and back home uh, in the evening. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the morning, I walk straight to the office. In the evening, I never take the straight road. Uh, unlike driving a car or being in a metro where you see nothing. Yeah, the metro, in the you can see anything. But right. In a car, if you see uh, like a new window in a store or pe- a group of people in the street or a musician or whatever, you cannot stop right. with all the traffic. While here, you can stop. So I meander almost every night. I sit down with people, talk with them. I listen to a musician. I don't know, here walk in Lafayette Square, you have a whole group of interesting people. It's tremendous. And uh, yeah, no, no, it's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic and it sounds so simple and obvious, but most people don't think about that, let alone do it. So I really am glad you shared that with us a few years ago. Let me uh, switch gears a little bit. Something you and I have in common, we both deal with a lot of entrepreneurs earlier in their businesses. We both look at companies for possible investment or coaching them, advising them. What do you look for in young entrepreneurs? I know you're peppered with a lot of opportunities, but what are the traits you look for before you decide to support a particular founder? So uh, me personally, yes, you look at the, the vision, whether it appears interesting to you or not. Okay. Then you look at the person. What about the person, like their track record in business or their character? No, person. I, I do a very personal interview. We don't talk business Okay. much. I'm trying to understand the person and how he reacts in, or how you judge is going to react in terms of, in times of crisis. Okay. Adversity. Sure. How he interacts with people, what sort of, you know, relationship he has so I'm asking them, I grill them with personal questions. And one thing I really try to see, but sometimes it's hard, is whether they have ego or not. Because if they do, for an entrepreneur, it's a bad sign. Absolutely. They work for a while, and then when success is coming, the ego takes over. For sure. Yeah. And you start having problems. So how do you measure that? I mean, how is that? You don't measure, but your word is wrong. Okay. You, you cannot measure somebody. You make a judgment based on his behaviors, body language, how he looks right, at you in the right. eyes. And then you talk whether about Whether he's uh, candid when he answers your questions, whether he's trying to manipulate you, mm-hmm. whether he has a level of arrogance or, you know, and it's all the type of answer, the way the answer is given, everything else. You are so busy with your, your professional life, your personal life. I know you still have family in France also. What do you like to do when you're not working? Oh, a lot of things. I, uh, I listen to music, and when I say I listen to music, I try to 
listen to new talents. And you also paint, you, you also paint, don't you? I paint. Do you paint uh, stills or people or what do you paint? Not people much. I uh, try to do a few. Some of them are okay, but n- yeah, not much. No, no, I do on people is collages. But otherwise, uh, I paint acrylic. I'd like to put up a couple pictures of your paintings on our uh, website once we have the podcast out. That'd be cool for people to see that. And you also are a competitive yacht racer. Aren't you like a major ocean racer? Major, I don't know, but... Well, you have uh, countries uh, asking you to join their teams. No, by the way, I'm missing, uh, I missed a race last weekend and I'm missing the America's Cup uh, launch next week, next weekend, uh, which makes me very upset. So, <laughs> so you, raised, yeah. you raised the wrong subject. No, what happened is when I was the CEO of Euro Disney, you may remember there was a huge crisis. And in the heart of the crisis, it, it was very difficult because it was very public. So you couldn't get out without people telling you you were dumb, <laughs> yeah, having blaming judgment, you. blaming right. you, or blaming your. Uh, and anyway, it was hard. Sure. So you need to do something. Uh, that's when I resumed doing uh, little paintings to kind of relax. Okay? Kind of an outlet for you. Yeah. But I was, I was not good. But I felt I need to do something which really challenged me. And one day, an amazing person who I knew called Peter Blake. Peter Blake. Peter Blake is a world sailor. He won the race around the world and a number of races. What country? Is he English or what country? Uh, Australian or New Zealand, I don't remember. Okay. Peter Blake was an amazing guy. And he had a project to go around the, around the globe in a balloon, no stop. And he asked me whether Disney could help him, you know, sponsoring the project, whatever. And I looked at it and I went back to him and told him, yes, if you take me on board. Wow. Okay. So, this I didn't know about you. So uh, came back home, told my wife. My wife told me I was nuts. Of course, she was right. And a week later, we had a dinner with uh, a friend of mine, Peter Blake. I knew him. He was not a close friend. But a close friend of mine, Bruno Perron, who is a French uh, sailing champion. And we had dinner at home. And my wife, Martine, tells him, you know, the latest crazy thing of your friend. Oh, I see where this is going. So, uh, so Bruno said, Philippe, you're nuts. Yeah, let's do this instead. Peter, let's Peter, get on the water. Peter is a, is a great guy, but he's a little bit up there. Mm-hmm. Literally up there. If you want to do something, you know how to sail, basically. I will teach you how to race mm. with me, and I'll take you. And uh, if you can practice enough, whatever. Martine liked this story. Your wife, I'm sure, was better. So uh, comfortable. He, so he taught me. Uh, uh, he taught me to become navigator. Navigator mm-hmm. is the, the guy who, on the boat, try to forecast the weather. But the last uh, is in touch with the router on the ground. Um, so he taught me that. Then he sent me to New Zealand because the best in the world navigator, his name is Mike Quilter. So you learned from the best navigator in the world. I went there. So while at the Disney crisis, I went to New Zealand once a quarter for one week to learn navigation with this guy. And then I started racing as navigator. I'm getting an idea crystallizing about your next book, and it's going to be about you, the navigator, in business, in life, and on boats. Because you you learned from the best, but you're, like I said, you identify trends. You told me they're not trends, but... There's a theme here, I think, developing. 
Let me ask you, I, and I know I interrupted you because we only have time for one more question, and I'm so grateful you gave us this much time. What are you most excited about in the future? Anything giving you a lot of hope right now or excitement? I decided, we discussed it a while ago, I decided that for me, retirement was about living my passions. Living your passions, not So relaxing. retirement is not, for me, playing golf and watching television. It's living my passion. And your passion can be working sure. with somebody you like mm -hmm. or working on the project you like. Right. It can be painting. It can be, so today it can be sailing. So today I'm, uh, I'm living my passions. That's what, what a I blessing do. to be able to live your passions. Well, you have a very impressive way. Wherever you are, you like get the most out of that community. And when you came to Cleveland for something I was hosting, we had like a half an hour of free time in between an afternoon activity and the evening event. And most people would have relaxed for half an hour, checked email for half an hour, maybe a quick workout or a quick nap. But Philippe, you wanted to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for yes. like a half an hour. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> it was a nice visit. Yeah. And you went to that IMPay building and you saw like one 50th of the place, but you maxed out as 30 minutes. It's very, you do that everywhere. It's very impressive. But again, that's what, you know, you take advantage of the moment. Let's go back to that. The for moments you create them. If you, uh, you, you know, you have people who watch the train passing. You need to decide to jump on the train. <laughs> Spectacular. And uh, everywhere there is something to do. Uh, walking around or... Uh, Going to the museum you know, real fast, yeah. Real fast or not. It was awesome. Depends. No, it was awesome. This visit, I remember very well, yes. Well, we're grateful that you spent an hour with us today, Philippe. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. You're a big influence discussion. on me personally, so this was quite a thrill. All of us from the Uptu community are thankful. Oh, no, no, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Story with us. Five takeaways from our conversation with Philippe. I could spend a whole other hour talking about what I learned from him, but we're going to stick with five short points. Number one, life is about encounters and opportunities. It's up to us to combine them and to make the most of it. Number two, we're most successful if we have a limited ego, for with a big ego, our eyes are closed. Number three, when something is impossible, it's impossible. Don't stress about it. Number four, we should take advantage of how easy it is in today's digital world to meander, letting our minds meander. Number five, as we become adults, we should work to keep our childlike spirit. Don't take ourselves too seriously. A special thank you to all of our listeners, to each of you. I'd love to know about a favorite moment or even a favorite episode. You can email me at adam at uptofoundation.org. Upto is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to our producer and audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman, and thank you so much for listening to the Up To Podcast.